Father, we are a people who long to accept your invitation, a people who long to come, to heed that call for us to come and worship. Worship the God who, is, who reigns above all heavens, the God who deserves all praise and glory, the God who is and was and evermore shall be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is no God like unto Thee. There is no God but Thee. There is no God except Thee. And we are the privileged ones because we get the high and the holy privilege of laying our egos at our feet and giving heart and soul and mind over to the God that we love. Father, we are, we are caught up in the stream of things. And because we are, we fail so often to heed your principles, to obey your voice, to follow your lead. And now, oh God, we've come to confess our sin. We want nothing to separate us from you. We want our worship to stimulate us. We don't want it to bore us for heaven's sakes, oh God. Why would we ever be bored? Why would we ever endure an hour that is designed to give glory to the God who saved us in Christ? Why would we ever fall asleep as your word is declared and proclaimed and sung and prayed? Why would that ever put us to sleep? we are too distracted. We are too distracted by the worries and concerns of this world to pause for an hour to worship. So, O oh God, we come as people who long to accept that grand invitation. We come to adore Thee. Our Father, accept our gifts. They are puny by many standards. And the thing that you want is not so much our money, but the worship of our hearts. That's what we come to bring. A check and our hearts. We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. The book of Judges, chapter 4. Um, while you're finding that, I was asked to make an announcement, and I forgot it. So let me bring you up to date at once. I used to play in the NBA, actually, but then I shrunk. Follow as I read now from Judges, chapter 4, uh, beginning... At verse 12, Judges 4 at verse 12. Follow as I read. And they reported to Sisera <clears throat> that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth and Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. 
Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth, Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot, foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God is something that endures forever and ever. Amen. One of the standard um, jokes that is leveled at people um, such as myself who are um, reaching the uh, top end of the age scale is they like to um, make fun of how forgetful we are. And, and indeed, it is a problem. You know, um, uh, I... Uh, I don't miss my uh, my bounding leap or my uh, fading eyes, but I do miss my brain. Um, it is going south, uh, as I'm sure you could tell. But um, every time I, I do forget something, and um, you know, particularly at uh, the age I'm getting, um, there is this this fleeting thought that dashes through my brain as mushy as it might be, um, oh my, the dreaded scourge, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. I have a friend, actually he wasn't a close friend, he was an acquaintance, uh, as most of you know, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. My ordination lies with the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, and this brother was a PCA pastor along with me or I with him, and he served in uh, South Florida and uh, really Southern Miami. And um, he was 53 years old. 
I will be 53 next month. He was 53 years old, and he was the youngest case of recorded Alzheimer's in the state of Florida. And the people in his church began to see him go down and down and down. And, and one of the, the uh, evidences of that was that he couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to stop. I mean, um, he would drag on and drag on and drag on. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet, as you've noted. But uh, he would drag on in his sermon. So finally, the, the disease had advanced so that um, he resigned and announced his last Sunday to preach. And uh, this brother, uh, his name was Bob. Bob preached in a robe. And um, on the particular Sunday of his resignation, of course, the congregation, the sanctuary was packed. And so he began to preach, preach, and preach, and preach, and preach, and preach. Went on and on. And finally, his wife, this is not my wife, this is Richard's wife, but uh, seated in the front row, walked up to the pulpit, took his robe off of him, put his coat on him, and escorted him out in the center of the church with the whole congregation wailing. You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, it is a disease that if you've been involved, I have not yet, um, is certainly a devastating scourge. It can have, it can have just horrible, as you know, physical ramifications to it. Um, the, the inability to remember is a serious problem physically. But ladies and gentlemen, um, I want you to know that the inability to remember can be a very serious spiritual problem as well. In fact, centuries ago, when, um, when monasteries were the thing, uh, in really the, the 14, 13, 14, 1500s, the monasteries were designed to help the monks or those who were inside the walls to uh, to remember, to keep from forgetting. And so they saw fit that reminders were needed every hour of every day of their soul's need and and God's great work. Um, so monasteries were places where people went to keep from forgetting. And so you and I today, who live in the cultural equivalent of, of Bosnia or Beirut, we have determined that we can get by with about an hour's worth a week. Yeah, that should, that should do it for me. Uh, about an hour's worth of work, and so you pay me a very handsome salary to make sure that we get reminded one of the hours of the entire week, making sure, you know, that every week or so I get some kind of spiritual ditty. Uh, hopefully it will not be too boring from good old Dr. Young, but that I can have one hour at least to think on holy things. 
And I, I read one author who said this, and it's profound. I'm not sure you'll get it. I hope you will. I, maybe, I think you, maybe I've underestimated you. But he said, and I'm quoting, I wake up most mornings as an unbeliever. That is, he goes to bed, but by the time he wakes up, he's already forgotten. And he wakes up most mornings as an unbeliever and saw the need so much to be reminded day by day by day of God's rich and extensive mercy and his own sin and his need for repentance. But that's, not, that's too much for us. About an hour a week will be plenty. Thank you. Guys, um, I say all of that by way of introduction, of course, to, to introduce to you to what I think is some principles in this story, this last half of the story, that I, I think are um, very important. Uh, they, they come to you not as new observations, I don't think. They will come to you by way of reminder. But when I read the text and I'm studying to, to stand up here and say something hopefully that's decent, um, I'm trying to pick out things in there that are, that are messages to me. Because the first person I preach to, ladies and gentlemen, is me. And um, to, for me, and, and I'm sure others would see it differently, but for me, and I, and I hope it'll be profitable for you, for me, the, the, the crux, the, the pivot of the whole story lies in this statement in verse 14 where Deborah says to Barak, Has not the Lord gone out before you? Then she precedes it by saying, Ah, oh, get up, get up, get, get busy. Has not the Lord gone out before you? And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that what you see Barak doing from, him, from, from this point forward is one of the least courageous acts ever recorded in the Bible. <clears throat> I did say least courageous. Now, it was obedient. Yes, indeed. Oh, my goodness, it was greatly obedient. But it was the least courageous. And this is what I mean. It has no courage in it because Deborah has walked forward and says, she asks a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? That's one where the answer is obvious. Has not the Lord gone out before you? The answer is, oh, yeah, he sure has. Then up! Up with you! Because the Lord is in this thing. And then the text says uh, in verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera. Now, indeed, Barak was being quite an obedient man. But I say to you, there's a sense in which Barak was doing something that was pretty blasted easy. Because he knew that the Lord was in it. And when he knew that it, the Lord was in it, I mean, the outcome is a, is a sure bet. Go to the bank, ladies and gentlemen, if the Lord is in this. And he has just been assured that indeed the Lord is. And so he brings his army of 10,000 down and, you know, the route is on. Um, do you see what Barak, or what Deborah is saying to Barak? She's simply saying, I can assure you that God is in this with you. So get up and get going and fight your enemies. Now guys, um, you know, I get questioned probably half a dozen times a year about the will of God. <coughs> Pardon me. You know, what is the will of God in this for me? 
What, what I'm saying is, Barak knew what the will of God is. You know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I say to you, I could have done this. You know what? You could have done this. You could have led Israel to victory if Deborah had said to you what she said to Barak. God is in this with you. Up, get on with it. Now you say, well, um, Jimmy, what's your point here, uh, friend? Um, seems to me that's awfully elementary. Um, that, uh, for someone as sophisticated as we are, uh, you know. Well, is it is it that elementary to us, ladies and gentlemen? Um, you may be right in calling it elementary, because it indeed is basic to Christian living. But I'm afraid it's some of the basics that we tend to forget. I want you to turn with me, if you will, to a New Testament passage in James chapter 4. James is way towards the back of the New Testament, and it's right before First and Second Peter. So, This is centuries later that this is written. And let me read you just the closing verses, actually almost all the closing verses, from James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen to tomorrow. For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So you're going to uh, buy a business, are you? Expand your business. Make an investment. I had a man share with me just in the last 10 days that uh, made an investment, mortgaged his house, and now he can't afford to send his kids to school. You're going to make an investment, are you? Go for it. a boy. Get a, get, a, get a hold of this, what used to be a bullish market. Go ahead. You know, clamp in there. You know, do your research. Oh, boy, yeah. So you, uh, you want to take another job, do you? You want to move, you know, you know, improve yourself. Nothing lateral for me. I'm moving up the ladder. Want to sell your house? Get married? How about, uh, I'm thinking about divorcing. You want to transfer to another school, perhaps, or, or uh, take a big vacation. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not yet determined that the Lord is in it, you are headed for utter disaster. We make decisions repeatedly that are small, medium, and large, and we haven't even dreamt about asking God, are you in this? Um... You know, it would be nice if there were a Deborah who could uh, come alongside us and say, okay, God's with you. We don't, do we? And uh, did you notice in the James passage where James says you boast in your arrogance? You're taking on things that you haven't committed to God. And you wonder 
why there's so much failure. You know, guys, um, I, I'm not a big investment guy. You know, I have a, a retirement plan that, that the church really provides, but don't get into it. I, I have told you my story about my Procter & Gamble stock. When I was with Procter & Gamble, I, uh, I was in this program where you buy stock, and, um, and I got one share while I was there. <laughs> And then it split. And then I had two shares. And then it split again. I had four shares. And then it split again. In since 1970, split again. I got eight shares. You're talking about a big, big-time investor right up here, ladies and gentlemen. But I wonder if any of us who are trafficking in all this portfolio management stuff. I wonder if we're, you know, spending up, spending hours at night on our computers, wandering through websites to figure if we could be, de, de, de. I wonder. I just wonder. Is God in that? Is He? And how would you know? Ladies and gentlemen, practically speaking, do you know what that means? It means that you and I, in every decision that we're facing, um, you know, uh, by the way, I, I hope you don't hear me being foolish up here. That is, um, if you want to choose rose lipstick over mahogany, go right ahead. Um, the decisions that have consequences for morally or familially, professionally, what it means is that you and I are going to become people who understand that we're not in charge. And so we're going to pray as if we couldn't dream of making a decision unless we had wrestled with this God before we launched out into our new venture. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we do, we do not have Deborah whispering in our ears, but we do have a book. And we have the Holy Spirit who wrote this book, who can guide us and, you know, for me, this is so blessed and fundamental. And, and I don't know if you heard my little examples, but I, I, I threw in there, take a big vacation. I can tell you of a vacation that we took that we knew was going to cost us a chunk. A lot of little providences that went up, led up to that. I can tell you about those too, but uh, we don't have time. But, um, you know, we agonized whether to spend that kind of money on a vacation. We were going to Washington, D.C. And... Um, girls, you know, just loving. I wanted to show them all this business. And then uh, you get back off the vacation and you say, that's, that's just unbelievable how well that went. You know, um, we pulled into a place to stay and they were having a two nights for one night special. You, know? you, you find out that uh, they're closing this monument, but you're the last ones that are going to get in. All of this unexpected provision. Now, I want you to know I've taken the other kind, too, where you get a speeding ticket on your way, and you get so sick while you're out there in the sun that you swear you're never going to do this again, and about day three into seven days, you're, you're thinking, i got to go home. This is miserable. 
And, and guys, my point is, God's in one, God's not in the other. And um, you can expect if God is in it, you can... By the way, when this, when this battle begins, did you know this? Did you know that the, the way that Barak defeated Sisera was because of a storm? Rain. Did you know that? Oh, no, wait a minute, Jimmy. I listened as you read that text. I listened, I heard everything you said, <clears throat> and there was nothing in there about a storm. Nothing. I didn't hear one word about rain. Ah, where'd you get that, Jimmy? That's a pretty good question. I'll show you where I got it. It's in the next chapter, which is the song of Deborah, who sings this song in response to the great deliverance that God had delivered. Look at chapter 5 in Judges, if you can, if you still got it around. But uh, Judges 5, 4, and 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. Read verses 20 and 21. Same chapter. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon, that's the river. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. That's where I got it. And ladies and gentlemen, you know, you know Sisera is one bad dude. Because he's got 900, not 800, not 700, he's got 900 iron chariots. But you know what? Chariots don't do so well in mud. And it, my point, God's in it. Watch this assistance that he brings along that is so unpredictable, so improbable, so, such a surprise. Because has not God gone out before you? Boy, he has, and when he does, victory. But when he doesn't, we're, we're headed in some real um, losses, ladies and gentlemen. All that mud, that's just the kind of stuff that you can expect when God's in it. And um, tent pegs are what you can expect when God's not in it. Um, let me hurry through this, but um, you see that Sisera's army is routed, and he gets off his chariot, and he heads... He flees. And he comes to that tent of Heber the Kenite. Remember him the last time I was with you two weeks ago? I mentioned verse 11. And I said you were going to see that God was even in this insignificant real estate deal that not even Heber's U-Haul was outside the, um, the providence of God. And so now she flashes back onto the scene. Sisera gets off his chariot and starts to run by foot. And there's Jael. Won't you come in here to my tent? And so he goes in thinking, well, number one, uh, you know, her husband and my king, they're good friends. That's in verse 17. And um, it is a tent of a woman, which no man would dare go in except a husband. I mean, even their cultural ethics supported such a thing. Even in military conflict, we wouldn't have dreamt going into another woman's tent who wasn't our wife. 
So uh, he gets down there and um, uh, he's thinking that he's safe. And uh, <laughs> what poor Cicero didn't know is that um, Deborah in verse 9 said that Cicero is going to be killed by a woman. He also didn't know that that Jael's first loyalty was to Jehovah, not even her husband. You see, um, somebody has forgotten. Somebody has forgotten that God is a formidable foe. Somebody forgot that 900 chariots is nothing. It's nothing when God is your opponent. Somebody forgot that their bulging portfolio is nothing when your foe is Jehovah. Somebody forgets, it seems, on a daily basis that their education is nothing. That their pedigree and their learning and their job experience and their, their wit and their charm and their beauty and their uh, elegant uh, speaking style, it's nothing. It's nothing. And somebody forgot that. Maybe it was Jabin the king who sent him out there and said, Oh, we got 900 chariots, you go get a big boy. Or maybe it was Cicero who thought, Look at my bulging biceps. Why are you here, Israel? Take a look at that. You think you're going to... Somebody forgot. Somebody forgot that God is a mighty warrior. And we don't want to tangle with him. Somebody forgot that. And boy, it cost him a tent peg in the temple. This temple, not the building. And then what you see there is another piece of gore. Um, maybe I shouldn't say that. What you see there is another piece of um, <laughs> ugliness. <laughs> um, <clears throat> gosh, I never, I, I've worked on this sermon 15 times, and I never saw that until right now. <laughs> um, and because of that piece of ugliness, as you might have expected, um, there are people all up and down the theological spectrum who have taken shots at this text, saying this is unworthy of the Bible. This woman is nothing but a murderess. She's a schemer and a deceiver. And um, she ought to be uh, vilified, not uh, revered. Um, but let me show you something again from that other text, chapter 5. I want to show you what they thought of her. Look at verse 24 of Judges 5. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the king. The people who experienced and were at the scene of the crime, you know what they called her? They called her the most blessed one on the face of the planet. Jael. But then we've got those folks who, with... I guess 4,000 years or whatever, 5,000 years of sophistication to decide that she's a murderess. You know, it's a matter of one's perspective, isn't it? It, it is always interesting to me. <laughs> My wife didn't know I was going to say this. Actually, I didn't know I was going to say this. But 
Susan and I went to the movie over our vacation, and we went to see the uh, Remember the Titans. Have you ever seen that? Um, take your kids with ease. I mean, it's a, it's really it's a story about racial reconciliation is what it's about. I don't know whether you knew that. Denzel Washington, uh, during the uh, early 70s when they were desegregating schools, go see it. It, it, it is really, it's really fine, and um, if you think it's offensive, come back and take my head off, but I don't think you will find that. Anyway, we went, and um, you know, I love to walk out with my wife and then go get some supper and say, okay, what do you think about the movie? Well, um, I have to confess that um, through the movie, I wept. I came out of the movie. It's a true story, by the way. And then they tell you where these people who are in the movie are right now. I love those things. You know, they tell you where they are now after 25 years or whatever. I love those things. This guy was the uh, starting quarterback at the University of South Carolina. And it was just great. And, and I walked out of there with my eyes still moist from having wept over the storyline. And so I said to Susie, what did you think of the movie? And she said, it made me angry. <laughs> I said, angry? How in the world did you get... She said, well, it was a good message and they had to cheese it up so much. I said, Denzel Washington is cheesing it up? You know? Anyway, I called my daughter in Washington, who is the thinker of the family, and I said, have you seen it? Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was debuted here in Washington, D.C. because it's a scene from right, right there in the Washington, D.C. area. And, uh, oh, yeah, I saw it. Was, and I said, what do you think? Oh, great, great. And my wife was sitting there on the bed, and I said... <laughs> Megan thought it was good. Why didn't you think it was good? I thought it was great. I cried at the thing. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? But ladies and gentlemen, here's my point. When people come to the Word of God and all they have for it is critique, when all they have for it is, well, let me tell you why this isn't true, you know, um, I think somebody has forgotten. They have forgotten that they, individually, do not have the final say about anything. But because we're so sophisticated and intelligent, we can tell you, we can tell you why we don't believe that. I want to show you a quick thing, and I'll quit. Turn with me real fast to Matthew chapter 6. This is kind of an afterthought, but it just makes the sermon longer. I know it's, it's a burden to bear. Um, bear with me. Just, uh, I'm in Matthew chapter 6, and I, I want to close by just commenting on this, this, uh, these two verses, and, and I hope it's related. Let's go. Verse 22, John 6, 22. I mean, Matthew 6, 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know what that means, I think? When, when he talks about the, the lamp of the body is the eye, it has to do with a way of seeing it has to do with how you view things. And if that lamp of the body is full of light, your whole body will be full of light. But if that lamp is dark, oh, how great will be the darkness within. 
It has to do with perspective. How do I view things? So, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you come to the Bible and, and you view it as this book that you get the chance to criticize. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we've got some lamp issues. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we're not supposed to come to this book to critique it. We're supposed to sit beneath it and allow it to critique us. But it's all a problem of forgetting. You know, guys, um, why is it that even after 6,000 years that we don't get much thrill out of watching God deliver his people? Why is it that we can read stories like this one and and walk away and say, well, that's a nice story. No, no, no. What are we going to lunch? Why is it that when we see this God who is a mighty warrior at work, taking the improbable circumstances and turning them into great deliverance, why doesn't that somehow move us? I don't know. Maybe it's because the lamp of the body That's true. My friend, you need Jesus Christ more than you will ever know. And I invite you to him. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, stir all of our hearts into a sense of reverence as we watch once again our great God at work. Father, this book for us sometimes, for me, becomes a resource book for sermons. And it does not play that role of being active and sharper than any two-edged sword to plow through my stony heart. But Father, um, I, along with many others in this room, take great joy in being delivered by the most creative God who did something that nobody would have ever dreamed. Even angels didn't understand it. A God who did something that was so misunderstood and so railed against. And, oh God, by grace, by sovereign grace, you have opened our eyes to see clearly. And our, our bodies are full of light because you opened the lamp of the body to see the truth. So we as a people take great pleasure in your acts of deliverance because we, each one of us, is an act of deliverance by God. How we rejoice in that, O oh God. And Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met our Savior, if they still wonder what Christmas is about, why Christians get so excited about it, I pray, Father, that you might give us the privilege of walking people in very 
small steps and point them right towards Jesus on the cross. Father, for the rest of us, we thank you for the reminder. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.